Hi, this is Lindsay Miller, and you're listening to the Arkansas Times Week Interview Podcast, recorded Friday, April the 15th. On this week's edition, we're going to talk about how the rich get richer in Arkansas, racist remarks from the Prairie County Sheriff, a lawsuit targeting the Little Rock School District, and a sweetheart deal from a former City of Little Rock insider to put on it on a new city-sponsored event. I'm joined by Max Brantley, as usual. Afternoon. So uh, ProPublica this week uh, continued its series delving into uh, to tax issues, uh, and it, it published the, the wealthiest uh, Americans' tax records, or some of them at least, and uh, the Waltons unsurprisingly figure into all this. Yeah, they're like 2% of the list of the 400 richest Americans. Uh, it, it was a five-year. They got five years of tax records in 2018, and they didn't list all 400 of them, but they they listed the top 15, of which there were some Waltons, and then they singled out the Waltons because there's so many of them, they're so rich, and there are 11 Waltons on the list of 400, and they, they're down to the grandchildren of Sam on, on in several cases, like Tom and Stewart are spending a lot of money there at Bentonville. And, you know, they were reporting somewhere from, oh, 200 to $700 million of income a year. Don't don't dare call it earnings. This isn't earned money. It's just money. But, uh, and their, their effective federal tax rate runs from, oh, 14 to tops out around 22 or 23%. And that's the point of the ProPublica reporting is is how little tax the ultra wealthy pay. And by way of example, uh, the top dollar 22% tax rate kicks in for other taxpayers. And every dollar you make over $40,000 a year. So, so Alice Walton's paying at a rate uh, that is about the same as that of a, a Little Rock school teacher with a few years of experience. Uh, I'm happy to say that my federal income tax effective rate in 2021, I just finished my taxes, was higher than Alice Walton's. So I'm glad I'm, I'm, I'm glad I'm, I'm glad I'm doing my, glad I'm doing my part. I'm not complaining. I was around 23 or 24%. I don't know, but in, in, in any event, so. I'd, I'd forgotten if I ever knew that uh, Stan Cranky or Cronky, however you say his name, the, uh, yeah. The owner of a bunch of sports franchises, in, including the Super Bowl winning L.A. Rams, is is married into the family. Yeah, and he apparently made some money. He's one who made some money on his own, I think. But uh, but he married into a big chunk too. So so lucky him. So helped him maybe buy a few more teams. Yeah. All right. Well, let's let's leave it there and and move on to a story that was both. Uh, somehow shocking, but not so surprising uh, at the same time. And that was uh, Prairie County Sheriff uh, Rick Hickman uh, getting called out for for using uh, using the N word. And then his defense of it was, I think, what really well that was that people. was as as a as a as a law enforcement person said to me. He said, you know, there was a way to deal with that. And his was a textbook example of how not to do it by saying, hey, everybody does it over here. We, call, we all call those people the N-word. He said, you know, that's just it's just kind of custom and, and sad, but true. It, it caused me to remember Sweet Willie Wine's famous civil rights march through Hazen where the then mayor Jerry Screeton 
block the city streets with rice combines to keep this herd of black activists from marching through his town. Eventually they came through thanks to protection of dozens of state troopers. But yeah, you know, we, th- this happened in another uh, sheriff in, I think it was in Arkansas County. It was one that hooks up to Prairie County. And it was only surprising that he would give a TV interview to a reporter that say on the record, yes, I use the N word and a lot of people here do. And that's just kind of the way things are. This is Except uh, it, it kind of contributes kind of to my, my thinking that, that, Donald Trump's to blame for all this, not for racism, but the sort of enabling of people to speak openly about at least manners used to dictate that you didn't say the N word publicly, you know, right. But now you can say, yeah, you know, I mean, there was a story today that I mentioned out of KIT in, in, in Jonesboro, this apparently really pernicious yik yak, uh, social media app is, back on college campuses and it allows all kinds of ugly anonymous comments to be made. And they had a, a black students uh, fraternity group had a little meeting on campus and it prompted a bunch of ugly racial remarks on Yik Yak that the chancellor denounced. But the KIT went out <laughs> to interview some of the students, some of the black students. And while they were interviewing one of the black students and people drove by a car shouting white power. As I say, I mean, there's just been this ugliness unleashed in the land, you know, and I, I don't know really, really what you what you do about it, you know, except that the, we're not supposed to talk about divisive concepts like this in school because racism in America is over, you see. Well, speaking of school, there was a lawsuit filed uh, against the Literary School District, I guess, last week that uh, challenges its plan to only hold two uh, elections for, for board seats rather than all nine after the census. And evidence suggests that this is not merely concerned citizens who are no. uh, worried about disenfranchisement. No, Gary Newton, who runs the, the Walton-founded pro-charter school, pro-school voucher, anti-Little Rock school district, nonprofit Arkansas Learns, more or less out of Facebook page months ago asking were there anybody interested in getting involved in fighting the decision by the school board to have elections only for two of the nine seats rather than with a year old board reelecting them all again to reflect new boundaries that were drawn because of the census that showed changes in population. Little Rock's attorneys say this is legal that uh, they've drawn lines that comply with the Voting Rights Act and they can have this election. There's a there's a Arkansas case on the point that would seem to support the attorney, but I think somebody's they've hired somebody is hired, and I don't believe it is the two uh, plaintiffs in the suit who both have sort of ties to private school support uh, to challenge this and try and establish that you, after the redrawing of boundaries, you've got to elect all school board members at the same time. And I think this is part of likely part of an effort to try and change the philosophical makeup of the Little Rock School Board. Uh, Newton's group spent some money and Walton money came into Little Rock School races uh, when they were all elected anew in 2020 after six years of state control. They actually won a couple of the seats. I mean, they're, they're people, two of the three people they backed uh, won races. 
but the school board is entirely too good for the for the school choice billionaire crowd. I mean, they've been a great school board and they work together well and they haven't fought a lot and they, they have sympathies toward the teachers. Maybe not enough as it so happened at the school board meeting last night, but they've been a good bunch and there's a good represent, representation of the African-American community and it's uh, working the way it's supposed to work. And uh, that's the last thing that the, the Walton, the Billionaire Boys Club want. So we'll see. The lawyers who filed this suit did not respond to my question of who's paying their fee. That's, and we know that one plaintiff is the director of operations at a, at a, at a religious private school. And the other one sends her kids to a private school. So, I mean, uh, the, all that just may be coincidental, but those are the facts. Yeah. It's, uh, as one LRSD insider told me, it's, it's almost surprising that this is the first lawsuit that's come from, Gary Newton, Walton Land against against the the district or the board. So, uh, there there will be there there will this will be an ongoing thing undoubtedly. Uh, Moving on, the the mayor and his uh, mayor of Little Rock, Frank Scott, and his State of the City address last year teased a new Riverfest replacement, which he uh, said would be called. Lit Fest, L-I-T, like the airport abbreviation, which is pretty confusing since that's the abbreviation most people use for literary festivals, uh, uh, which Little Rock already has has a prominent one of those. Anyway, it didn't happen because of the pandemic, but now in his most recent State of the City address said, we want to revive this, and it emerged uh, yesterday that Think Rubik's, which is a national consulting group that recently hired Charles Blake, uh, mayor's longtime friend and uh, former chief of staff, uh, is going to put on the festival. This is all just a coincidence. Yeah, let me let me put this in, in the legally uh, appropriate manner. This stinks. <laughs> you know, I mean... This this uh, deal to promote this event was put in motion while Charles Blake was still employed by the city. And, yeah, there was a request for qualified uh, applicants to apply. But guess what? Only one did. And, it, and the criteria was pretty well tailored that uh, I think Rubik's had the had the had the resume to qualify for this work. Uh, and a city committee them to do it. It happened to be at a level $45,000 that doesn't require board approval of an outside expenditure. Uh, so it was kind of, I mean, you can't say it was no bid because there was an RFQ, but there weren't bids. I mean, we don't, and, and the, and the contract provides for additional payments as necessary. If, if more costs come, they're supposed to raise some money for sponsorship. There's going to be music with national entertainers, and food, and they're going to have, oh, I don't know, panel discussions and speakers and what have you. And I, I don't know. I think it's important to remember that Riverfest, whatever the artistic fa- success it might have been, was a financial failure, and that's why they stopped having it. Bad weather can cause some real problems. Uh, the city has had to bail out Riverfest in the past and, and was a tremendous subsidizer of it to begin with. Uh, I, I, anyway, uh, you know, I. Yeah, they don't even have. They don't even have a date. The, the back, the rest of the story on this was is I got a tip that this had occurred. I filed an FOI request for the agreement, and I got the usual runaround from the non-transparent Frank Scott administration. 
And finally, after two days of me complaining about their slow response, knowing that there was an agreement, uh, I finally got it yesterday, but only after the city had issued a ass covering news release saying they'd hired a nationally known firm to handle this event. Oh, and yeah, by the way, Charles Blake works for him, but that just makes it all the better because he knows Little Rock so well. I suspect there's a lot of other work in Little Rock that'll be heading Charles Blake's way unless somebody on the city board raises some objections to it, which I think they should. They don't have a rule here as sometimes state and federal governments do about high-ranking employees uh, leaving government employment and then immediately doing work with the government they left. They should, but it just doesn't look right. That's all. It, it just doesn't. And, and anyway, I, I, I suspect that this will be set up as a platform primarily as a campaign event for Frank Scott, who's running for re-election this year, and he'll get a lot of face time and get a lot of his his uh, bloviating speeches uh, full of intentionality and, and other buzzwords that are popular these days. So, It's, uh, aside from all that, which is a big aside, it's really hard to put on a festival, and they, they seem to be sort of going for a South by Southwest vibe. But of course, South by Southwest is decades old and it started small and has only more recently grown into this kind of big combination of music festival and tech and kind of Aspen Ideas Fest where you get all these prominent folks to come and talk. And it's underwritten by a tremendous amount of corporate money. Well, that's the question. I think Rubik's is supposed to raise $75,000. That ain't going to begin to get it. I mean, yeah. it's just not. And and I don't see how they can do this in a good fashion without the city ponying up a bunch more money. Um, but we'll see. I mean, as I say, we, we don't even know when it's going to be yet. But they, they wanted to get some word out about it because they didn't want the story to be an insider getting the business. They wanted it to be about the fest. And so they uh, were forced into a premature announcement of it. <laughs> that didn't work out so well. Uh, yeah, well, we'll we'll stay on this. I suspect the city board is is not gonna uh, not gonna be excited about it. Uh, well, uh, this I didn't say this on in the intro, but since we've got a little bit of time, let's let's quickly talk about a couple of rulings from the state supreme court. Uh, one was over uh, mass mandate in schools. A Bentonville Circuit Court or Benton County Circuit Court judge uh, filed an in, or uh, handed down an injunction against the district for moving forward with the mass mandate. Supreme Court overturned that. Yeah, and I mean, there's I have to be careful about drawing too hard, fast conclusions about this. For one thing, uh, although the court did say even though the rule is no longer in effect, the issue was not moved because it was a matter of great public interest. And they seem to side with the ability of the school board to have broad policy considerations that affect health, which makes perfect sense. But there were some dissenters on that point, and uh, particularly Barbara Webb was just an unhinged dissent saying, why this is taking parents' rights away for making health decisions about their children, yes. And I, so presumably she'd be against shot requirements as well. Uh, but also there's another case pending, and that's the appeal of the Little Rock case, where a Little Rock judge said the state law that banned mass mandates in school districts was unconstitutional. And 
you might think the Bentonville case means the court will will uphold that decision. And I, I think maybe I'm leaning that they will. But there's a significant issue in the in the other case that's still pending, and that is that this was a, a, a law, a state law. And there wasn't a state law regards what happened in Bentonville. Uh, I mean, it was it was just a straight up challenge of the rule on parental rights grounds. So, you know, it's uh, that that's going to be the, the court is sometimes reluctant to overrule the legislature. So that's that's going to be a difficult issue. But. But anyway, it was nice to see. And, and meanwhile, of course, COVID is, is we're among the lowest states in new cases currently and hospitalization numbers are down and everything looks like the end is near. But other parts of the world indicate that the end is not yet near. So masks may be back. And, and the court actually acknowledged that, saying that, you know, this is something that could arise again. And there's another ruling uh, related to Leslie Rutledge spending money. Yeah, the, the, the court pretty much killed a lawsuit that challenged her spending of, of her consumer protection money in self-aggrandizing ways. And, and, and more importantly, challenged her going into lawsuits all over the country that have negligible state interest, except as she determines state interest to be political interest of hers. And that was disappointing because I, I think kind of had this strictly textualist ruling that says state law pretty well gives this attorney general broad discretion to decide what she gets involved in and how she spends her money. And we're not going to get in the way. They kind of left open the issue of whether you could sue her in her official capacity rather than her personal as an individual on this. But uh, the lawyer for the plaintiffs in this pretty well thinks that they've foreclosed a successful action by saying that the things he raised that were illegal were okay. For example, defending the NRA in a, in a lawsuit where they're fighting fraud charges. What that has to do with the state interest of Arkansas is anybody's guess, but unless the NRA is sort of the state church of Arkansas, which it kind of is. <laughs> so, so anyway, that was, that was too bad. And, uh, unfortunate but uh, at least there was a lot of attention given to Rutledge's uh, easy spending of state money and to advance her political career all right let's leave it there and move on to endorsements what do you have this week oh well I've, I've started watching this series on HBO Max uh, Julia it's basically a, a a biopic of Julia Child and the it's great and it's great in part because the British actress who's playing Julia Child, Sarah Lancashire, is just fabulous. I mean, I, I think she's better than Meryl Streep was in the movie in which she played Julia Child. She's got her build is perfect for her for one thing, but she just has that laugh and the mannerisms down to a T. And and it, and it, and it kind of explains. I mean, it gives you the the whole backstory about how Julia Child. Rose and was kind of individually determined to get it done and invented a TV show that became incredibly successful. And anyway, and, and I'm a, I like to cook and like to eat and like your child, but her Lancashire's performance is just is just fabulous. Great. Sounds great. I haven't I haven't checked it out yet, but it's on my list. I uh, this week just wolfed down Jennifer Egan's new book, The Candy House. It is uh, 
follow-up of sorts of her Pulitzer winning a visit from the Goon Squad. A lot of the same characters, uh, a similar approach. Each chapter is um, about a different character, but they're all, or, or at least most, are kind of interrelated, and some of them make further appearances. This one is set a little bit in the near past and a little bit in the near future and some kind of in contemporary times, but it it uh, a visit from the Goon Squad had a lot to do with the music business. Uh, this is kind of all about technology, and uh, Egan kind of invents some new some new social media uh, and new technologies that are you know speculative and kind of sci-fi, but but are not so far from where we currently are as to be just just weird and nothing more. I mean, they're they're it, it's a kind of critical speculative sort of thing uh but she's just so smart and has it's just filled with so many interesting ideas and commentary and critique and and she's always a very propulsive writer that the book just whizzes along and it's just kind of this fizzy rod uh that I, I i just loved i don't know that it would be everybody's thing maybe because of the technology side um, and she plays with form quite a bit, uh, as she did in a visit from a, a visit uh, from the Goon Squad. There, there is a chapter that's just email back and forth. Um, there's one that's written kind of uh, in just like little bitty two sentence dispatches. Um, one is written from the perspective of an 11 year old girl. So anyway, it's. Uh, I'm a big fan of Egan's, and this, uh, I think, is one of her best. So, if that sounds good. Sounds good. Thanks for listening, all. Uh, stay safe out there, and we'll be back next week, hopefully. Well, I hope. <laughs> See you around. <laughs>